This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. So today I want to talk about scapegoats, sacrifice, and stable systems. I recently finished reading a book by philosopher Rene Girard called The Scapegoat. And Girard is analyzing history and works of literature, anything from great myths to Shakespearean plays, and identifying um, what he calls uh, representations of collective violence done against typically an, an innocent or at least somewhat innocent victim as a way for societies to, uh, as a form of kind of catharsis, a way for them to um, reset in a time of crisis, to pick a scapegoat, to focus all of their wrath and their violence, and to uh, kill or banish or exile that person in, a, in kind of a ritualistic way. It's really mob violence. But then in retrospect, these are told as stories and the victim is made to look um, as if he or she deserved it. Uh, in the case of witch trials, um, you know, various other examples. Uh, but really, it's just collective violence that's focused on one person and they're, and they're said to be the source of all evil and killing them or banishing them is said to be the, the solution to all evil. So that's the, the premise of the book and what it's about. Um, in the latter half of it, he talks about um, Jesus's uh, crucifixion as kind of the, the final thing that, that breaks this collective violence, this scapegoat uh, mechanism. But whether or not you accept that part and kind of the theological implications, there's a lot of really interesting work and in a new way to, to do sociology where you neither have to accept and call uh, good bizarre rituals and practices like human sacrifice and collective violence because they happen in another culture that you can't understand and you don't want to condemn them, um, which is kind of a, a trend in, in, I don't know, maybe postmodern thought. Nor do you have to dismiss them as purely crazy, irrational, uh, evil paganism with no you know, purpose. There's nothing you can understand about them. Um, you know, almost, almost the way that people view terrorism today when they say things like, well, they hate us because they're free. They're crazy. They're irrational. You can never understand their motives. Um, you know, and that, that kind of mindset, I think, is completely unproductive and anti anti-economic uh, to, to, to not accept that individuals take actions for reasons they believe to bring them um, a particular end. And if you don't even try to understand it, you're missing out. So I think Gerard does a great job of providing an alternative description in some of those cases. But the case that I want to talk about specifically because it has connections to some really interesting economic work um, is in the in the book, Gerard talks about this episode in the Bible where Jesus goes to uh, Gerasa. I don't even know if that's how you pronounce it, but um, he, he crosses the, the lake and he has all these people who are, you know, wanting to hear from him and he's tired. And so he crosses the lake and um, comes to a, a, a city that's, um, you know, it's not, it's not Jewish. These are um, Gentiles. And there's a man who is afflicted by demon possession in the story. And 
Jesus confronts uh, the demons. He's speaking to the demons uh, through this man. And he casts them out into a herd of pigs that immediately run off of a cliff and uh, basically kill themselves, die. And the man is freed from this possession. And it says that he had, when, when these episodes of demonic possession would take him over, the people in the town would chain him up and bind him, but no matter what they did, he would break free, run out into the wilderness, roam among the caves and the, and the tombs, bash himself with rocks, this wild, crazy man that couldn't be contained. He was kind of exiled away from society until the episode was over, and then he would sort of come back um, until it happened again the next time. So Jesus frees this man from this affliction. And... You know, as a kid, I remember reading this story, and I was always so baffled by the response that the the town folk give him. They say, go away from us and never come back, essentially. Um, I realized, I just said essentially, I realized in listening back to some podcasts, that's like my my go-to word. I just, I say the word essentially all the time. I don't know why. <laughs> I'm going to have to work on that. So they tell him... Um, go away from us. We want nothing to do with you. And it never made any sense to me. I didn't understand why they would do that after Jesus had freed this man from this dangerous, these dangerous episodes he would have. Well, Gerard presents a really interesting explanation. He says, this guy and his demonic episodes this was part of what was keeping the balance in this society. There's this buildup of pressures, and, and Gerard goes into what he calls mimetic desire, people having competing desires for the same things, wanting to be like each other, desiring things just because other people do. Um, and it breeds, you know, it's kind of this zero-sum game, and it breeds conflict and tension, and it mounts, and society looks for some kind of outlet, some kind of scapegoat, um, as a way to kind of alleviate, at least temporarily, this mounting pressure and a a form of collective violence focused on one person um, as a way to reduce the amount of violence that people do, you know, I guess, to each other in a more dispersed way. And so he interprets it as this sort of pagan village. They're at kind of an earlier stage of cultural development than maybe, um, you know, some of those more connected with the, the Roman Empire or whatever. And they focus their violence on this one guy they bind him up and then he breaks free and kind of exiles himself into the wilderness and and then when he's all done with his episode he comes back and this destructive sort of dangerous irrational appearing um kind of process serves a purpose in this society it maintains a kind of balance and order it's almost turned into a religious ritual you bind up the wild man he breaks free and goes and does damage and once he's all done you know he's sort of he's sort of taken all of our um you know problems and and violence and chaos embodied it in himself been exiled to the wilderness and then he can come back and it kind of relieves this pressure and whether or not you buy that, whether whatever you think of, of Jesus or the, the factual truth of the story doesn't really matter so much for the, the point that I find interesting is that Gerard is, is getting to something. And that is we don't always know the purpose being served by beliefs, practices, rituals, 
that appear on the surface to be crazy or wholly irrational, that they are sometimes maintaining a kind of equilibrium, a kind of social stability. Now, that doesn't make them good. There's no moral uh, implications for pointing out that something creates a, a stability or an equilibrium. Um, but I think it's valuable to understand. Where this relates to economics, the work of Peter Leeson, who is probably by, I don't even say probably, by far my favorite um, my favorite contemporary economist, my favorite young economist sort of doing work today. I was going to say my favorite living economist, but I think some others um, are still living uh, very, very old and not doing too much work right now. But uh, Leeson is amazing, Peter Leeson. And a lot of his work focuses on finding rational explanations for seemingly irrational things, trying to understand why bizarre, odd behavior might exist and persist in certain societies using economic analysis. So sort of not letting yourself off the hook by just saying, oh, those people are crazy, you can't understand it. Whether or not we call them uh, good or bad or say there's a better way they could do things, they're, they're doing things for a reason. Even if they're wrong, they must believe that there's something about these seemingly crazy actions that is beneficial um, and is bringing them a, a result that, that they want and some kind of social stability. So Leeson, some of his work focuses on things as, you know, crazy and controversial as human sacrifice. And he, he looks at certain societies that have practiced this. And he says, from an economic standpoint, um, it's understandable why some of these cultures would practice human sacrifice. It's essentially a way I said, essentially again, got to put my put money in a swear jar in an essentially jar um it is a way to signal to potential uh invaders plunderers that your village is not as valuable it's a way of destroying some of your own wealth in order to keep it below a certain threshold so it's not worth the time and effort for um, others, outsiders, invaders to come and plunder you. And there's, you know, maybe more, more to it than that, but in my simplified way. And I think the point that Leeson makes is whether it's human sacrifice or uh, witch trials, which Gerard talks about as well, those are performing a function in a society, bringing about a certain kind of stability. And that doesn't make them good. It doesn't mean that there's no better way to get stability. Uh, in fact, Realizing how evil and screwed up those practices are um, is necessary, but the point is it's not sufficient. If you merely say, this is bad, stop doing it, um, you're, you're going to have results that might even be worse. And in some of Leeson's work, and I can't remember wh which papers in particular now, he gives examples of, I think it's British colonists, um, and I don't remember if it's the practice of human sacrifice or the burning of one's own crops or some other um, seemingly irrational activity where they say, hey, you have to stop this. This is crazy. Stop. And so they, they kind of forcibly stop the practice, but it leads to all kinds of other bad outcomes because as long as the beliefs among that populace persist, let's say in, in witch, witch hunts, that witches exist, that they are the source of uh, bad crops, um, bad weather, um, disease. Stopping people from burning those witches isn't really getting to the, the 
core of the problem. The, the witch burnings were a way to, um, in their mind, restore order with the least amount of, of damage done and in the most efficient way they knew how. Now, they were acting on bad information. They had bad incentives at play. But if you don't address those underlying incentives, you're going to not really get to the root of the problem. You're not going to be able to uh, necessarily improve that society. So bizarre practices, habits, and things, they exist for a reason. And in order to change them, to bring about meaningful social change, you have to understand what purpose they're serving. Um, this might be a bit of a stretch, but it reminds me of the Pelsman effect, which is uh, economist Sam Pelsman um, observed and, and did some work on the effect of seatbelt laws. And when you say, hey, seatbelts save lives and they reduce injury in car accidents, um, let's let's make everybody wear them by passing laws that, it, that, that raise the cost of not wearing seatbelts. You might get pulled over, you might get ticketed. So they change people's equation for how valuable it is to put on a seatbelt. So you get more people wearing seatbelts. Great. So now you've improved safety, right? Turns out you actually don't improve safety. In fact, the number of injuries uh, and deaths from car accidents slightly increase. The number of accidents goes up because people have a certain level of risk they're willing to tolerate. And once they, you know, and they're willing to tolerate not wearing a seatbelt uh, because it, even though it reduces their, um, you know, increases their risk of, of injury, once they start wearing a seatbelt because they don't want to get pulled over or whatever, they compensate for that increased safety. And it's not even conscious, I don't think, in most cases, by driving a little more risky. So the increased risky driving results in more accidents, but when the accidents happen, the injuries are lesser because of seatbelts. So you would think it would kind of you know be a wash, um, except one group is not protected by seatbelts, and that's pedestrians or people on bicycles. And so when those kind of accidents go up, uh, the number of deaths and injuries increases. And so it's, it's an example of how addressing a visible act that seems irrational to you, people not choosing not to wear seatbelts and forcing them to, doesn't get to the underlying reason. There's a reason they're not wearing those seatbelts, and that's because they have a certain risk calculate, a risk tolerance that they're willing to live up to. And if you don't let them take risk in one way, it will manifest in another way. And if you really want to increase the safety in the long term, you have to, I guess, alter people's beliefs about um, an appropriate risk tolerance. You have to convince them to lower their risk tolerance or change the incentives in some way so that it makes sense for them to drive more safely. Peltzman uh, famously suggested, look, if you really want people to drive safely, you shouldn't have them wear a seatbelt. You should mount a spear on the steering wheel two inches from their chest, and people will drive uh, perfectly and not take any risks on the road. And it's an example of how understanding what's th what the cause is of the behaviors that we, we think are irrational or problematic um, will help us understand how to alter those. So the, the main insight here is, is just that, that in efforts to change society, whether it's a family, a corporation, uh, a culture in a business, society at large, it's not enough to say, I see an act or repeated acts or a ritual or a procedure or a tradition or a belief that is that seems crazy to me, that's detrimental to those people engaged in it, we should stop that or I should stop that. You need to ask, 
why the people involved are choosing that act versus all the other things that they could be choosing. Sometimes it's because they don't know other options exist. Sometimes it's a core fundamental um, underlying belief, whether religious or not, about the way the world works that would make them feel that is the only option. Sometimes it's because there are other incentives at play that you may not be aware of. Um, I, I remember a story of, I don't, I don't remember who, uh, visiting the, the French countryside, a person from England in, I don't know when this was, um, maybe 15, 1600s, and, and, and remarking on how poorly kept up the English farms were. I mean, I'm sorry, the French farms and farmhouses compared to those in England. And he asked his French uh, associate tour guide, I guess, well, what is, what is the deal? Why haven't, don't these people know of the new advances in farming and, and different, you know, construction of barns or whatever it might be? Why haven't they improved their property? And the guy said, why would they? The minute they do, it sticks out and the king will come and seize more of their taxes. So it makes no sense for them uh, to improve their property. And so understanding that there's a, a bigger set of incentives at play, if you, if you have insecure property rights uh, or potentially you know, high onerous taxes and, and predation by a government nearby, teaching someone more advanced farming techniques, um, ways to make their land more valuable will actually make their life worse if they implement them because now they'll stick out. They'll be more of a risk of being attacked and plundered. So understanding the institutional setting, understanding the incentives at play, understanding the beliefs at play is crucial to trying to alter practices in society that you may think are detrimental. I highly encourage you to check out the work of Rene Girard. Uh, a little bit tough to read sometimes. Uh, maybe it's just the translation from French. Um, a little bit wordy, but really challenging, very interesting intellectually. I must admit, I've only read The Scapegoat as well as some essays on, um, there's a website called Imitatio. That's kind of an institution devoted to his work. I highly encourage you to read uh, Pete Leeson's work. If you just Google Pete Leeson or Peter Leeson, his website, I think it's PeteLeeson.com, has all of his papers and he just cranks them out. I mean, and they're really clear, very easy to read. He has a book um, I highly recommend. It's um, it's called uh, Anarchy Unbound. As I believe that's the name of the book. Uh, very, very good book. So um, check out those resources. And uh, the next time you see a practice or a behavior that you say, that's crazy, that's irrational, those people are stupid, they should be stopped from doing that. Stop and ask yourself why they might be doing that and why they're choosing that mode of action versus some alternative. Is there something else at play? Are there other incentives or beliefs that are more fundamental that would need to be changed first? 